Uh, good morning, church. Uh, my name is Robert, and together with my wife Heather and her kids Wyatt and Cosette, we are part of this uh, congregation for, I don't know, probably like eight, eight months or so. And I just want to say it's, it's really been a blessing for us to be uh, part of this community with you guys. And I just thank God um, all the time for leading us to be part of this uh, church with you guys. So thank you very much. I'm going to be reading from Mark uh, chapter 12, 28 through 34. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have, you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more, any more questions. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Thank you, Robert. I'm glad you're here too, my buddy. Hey, good morning. My name's Tanner House. I'm the, the lead pastor here. If you're a guest, thank you so much for being here. There's a connect card under your chair. If you'd take a minute, fill that out. We would love an opportunity to serve you, uh, an opportunity to see how we could get you plugged in to the life of the body. And if you need a Bible, we have them on the back table. Rodney can bring you one if you'll raise your hand. And we use the ESV if you're on your phone or your tablet or something like that. So there's this fun thing just about being a person uniquely wired with our own set of hobbies, our own set of interests that we share with some people and then an entirely other group of people just doesn't understand us. Um, we love to talk about whatever it is that we're into. So for me, it's coffee. I can tell you the intricacies of a perfectly roasted Ethiopian Yurgachev coffee bean and just all how it tastes when it hits your tongue and it's so good and amazing and nobody understands and while I try to like provide good coffee for you guys here at Redeemer some of you still show up with your Starbucks and it's offensive anyways so like 10 years or so ago if you met somebody that did CrossFit uh, you couldn't necessarily tell by looking at them that they did CrossFit but that's all they would talk about was CrossFit uh, sports people do this. For example, if you are a sports person, there is this pervasive argument about who's the greatest basketball player of all time. It's Michael Jordan. Some of you might say LeBron or Kareem, but you'd be wrong. Um, or who is the greatest quarterback ever? Uh, Matt and Trent might try to tell you it's Aaron Rodgers, but we all know it's Tom Brady. Seven rings, Tom Brady. Uh, music people do this too, like who's the greatest rapper of all time, Biggie or Tupac? Personally, I think it's T-Pain because he rhymed, he rhymed, I'll tell you why, he rhymed the word mansion and the word Wisconsin. Yeah, 
Only artists can do that. He's the greatest of all time. Or country music people, Garth or George. For me, it's Johnny Cash, and it's not even close. Anyways, it's always fun, right, to have these conversations and have some banter with people that we share the same interests with. But then increasingly in our world today, there's a lot of polarization around what seems to be like absolutely everything. Meaning, as a culture, we have lost our ability or our willingness to just have some civil discourse over the stuff we disagree about. We take hardline stances on absolutely everything, and we get behind whatever movements or causes are trendy or popular for the day. Or if we don't align with some of these things, then we try really hard to like completely dismantle them, and we're doing all of this in the public space. Right now, there are fights ranging from what seems to be uh, every institutional level. For example, education, the family, church, sex and marriage, these places that, that when I was growing up were a really integral part of your formation as a person. Now, they're a part of what seems to be your deformation as a person, as we are trying to dismantle culturally all of these institutions. This is the age of cynicism. This is the age of skepticism. And as we are artificially connected to absolutely everyone because of the technology we're addicted to, it creates platforms for people. And sometimes those are good. Most of the time, they're bad. Um, and this is not new, right? Culturally, this is not a new phenomenon. Just, just take a kind of a mental brief overview of American history, if you will. People just do this. Like, you have the hippie movement in the 60s, the Red Scare in the 50s through the 80s. Currently, we have Trumpism on one side and wokeism on the other side, and we all fall somewhere into that spectrum somewhere. And then there's this gender debate, and then there's this debate over critical race theory. And while we do not have time to unpack it all today, there are some very important things that we need to discuss as a church as a people called to follow Jesus and encouraging others to do the same. So here's what I don't want. I don't want to polarize these things. I don't want to debate these issues. I don't even really want to tip my hand at all to, to where I stand on a lot of these things because I don't think that's helpful to us this morning. There are, however, a few things that I just want to ask you to consider. In our fight... As, especially as we're fighting for noble causes like truth and justice, or as we engage politically, or really any stance we take publicly or privately, as Christians, it is important for you to align where God aligns. It's good and necessary to care about the things that God cares about. It's good and necessary to also be informed and transformed and shaped by the will of God for your life, for us and to us. And we know what these things are. We know where we need to be shaped and transformed because we have the word of God available to us to show us what it is God desires for us and what to do with us. And in our text today... Jesus is presented with one of these questions. 
Jesus. What is the greatest commandment? What is the most important commandment? Daniel Aiken calls these the mega questions. Jesus, what's the most important thing that I do here? Man, and how, how we respond to this question, how we respond to how Jesus responds to this question impacts us on some really deep and profound levels as we try to follow Jesus. And anytime we approach a text like this, or any text for that matter, I just want to call you to consider as you read your Bible, because you should be reading your Bibles, I want to call you to consider, what is Jesus really getting at here? What is Jesus trying to say? And out of a good and proper understanding of what Jesus is trying to say, then I want us to consider what Jesus is calling us to So what I want to call you to this morning, what I want to ask you to consider this morning as we look at this text is, do I love Jesus and others this way? And if not, why not? And if not, what does that really say about me? Before we dive in, though, we need to pray. I just want us to all posture ourselves before this text, before the Lord, with some level of humility, uh, because this text is weighty, and this text is heavy, and it can feel like a really heavy burden to us. And so I just, again, just want to ask the Lord, come before the Lord, and ask for, ask for help and mercy to us as we open his word together. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we need you. Lord, show us our need for you. Lord, I would ask that in this moment that you would reveal idolatry to us, Lord, that you would root out any unbelief or any sin that is going ongoing and willful, unconfessed, unrepented of. Lord, that you would just call us out of of those spaces. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Church, I'd ask if you're willing that you just pray for yourself. Pray that the Lord would reveal areas of unbelief in your life and in your heart and in your mind. Lord, that, uh, that you would just ask the Lord to help you consider the cross of Jesus to you this morning. Lord, we trust you. Help us to trust you more. Have your way with us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 28, it says, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he, being Jesus, answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? So just by way of review, if you're new, we've been in Mark for about 18 months now, 16 months. Um, We're going to review the last few weeks. Let's just set the scene. We're still known in what is known as as the Passion Week of Jesus. This week begins when Jesus rides into Jerusalem in what is known as uh, the triumphal entry on what uh, the Western Christian world calls Palm Sunday. And it ends with the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. So we've seen Jesus ride into town on Sunday. Then the next day, on a Monday, he goes to the temple and cleanses the temple of the money changers and the people that are extorting the people for for monetary gain. And then on a Tuesday, we see the beginnings of a lot of conversations in which Jesus' authority is going to be questioned. It's going to be challenged. The implications for us for the last several texts in our walk through Mark is this. The people... The Jewish nation, 
They're getting the Messiah that they have been promised for generations. But for many of them, they're not getting the Messiah that they want. Justin told us a few weeks ago, they want the kingdom, but they don't want the king. And so after Jesus' activity on Sunday and Monday has aroused the anger and frustration of these Jewish leaders, they're thinking, here is this guy, he's insanely popular, and he's turning people away from our influence in society towards his. This is just not going to work for us. Verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 12 says that they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but they were afraid to because of what the crowd might do if they arrested Jesus. We've seen Jesus interact with the Pharisees. We've seen Jesus interact with the Herodians, and they're both trying to trap Jesus so they can arrest him, and they can't make him slip up. They can't catch him in a contradiction. And so last week, these people known as the Sadducees show up, and they're trying to trap Jesus about a physical resurrection. And keep in mind, all, all this is going on around what is known as the Passover, there are people from all over the known world there at Jerusalem to make sacrifices. There are a lot of people witnessing these interactions. So the stakes seem to be incredibly high. And Jesus has answered all of their questions, and he has quieted all of his critics. And so today we see this scribe. A scribe is basically a lawyer of the scriptures. They know the Old Testament. They're able to arbitrate matters pertaining to to questions about the Old Testament, specifically the first five books, also known as the law. So there's this the scribe, and he approaches Jesus. The difference that I've noticed in this guy and the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, at least in Mark's version of the story, is that this scribe is approaching Jesus without any pretense or ulterior motives. He's approaching Jesus, taking the posture of humility and taking the posture of, of a learner. In Matthew's account, which is much shorter than, than this, the scribe does appear to be testing Jesus. But here's the thing. His motives are not what's important to us. What's important to us is what Jesus says. So whether or not he is testing Jesus, the main thrust of both of these texts is what the question is and how Jesus responds. And since we're in Mark, I'm just going to take the the Mark approach, this man appears to be sincere, at least in Mark's text. So he comes up to Jesus and he says, Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? So in the first five books of the Old Testament, Jewish tradition would tell us that there are 613 commandments or laws. 365 negative laws, the also known as the do not do this laws. And then you have 248 positive laws, the, the do this type of commands. And they're varying in severity, lighter laws and heavier laws. The heavier ones, as you, as you would expect, would be more demanding and they carried with them more severe penalties for disobedience. So just as a brief aside, I'd like to speak briefly on this idea that there's like a Christianese statement that's pretty popular right now that all sin is is sin and equal before God? That's only true in the sense that all sin is missing the mark that God sets for us. All sin equally means that we all deserve condemnation before God. 
But not all sin are equal in terms of their severity, in terms of their impact on others, and the future consequences therein. So in our case, we'll take like two familiar examples to us. Running a stop sign, murdering somebody. Both are wrong, right, as they are both against the law. And while I'm not condoning that you run stop signs, hear me, have some integrity behind the wheel of your vehicle. Uh, you should care about being a representative of Jesus in terms of obeying the law of the land. Murder is far more damaging and far more deserving of a stricter punishment. Would we agree? Yes? Okay. Even in the Old Testament, some of those laws are punishable by death by stoning. And some just require you to go and like wash your hands. So it stands to reason, while all sin separates, some sins are more damaging. And God knows this. And so here we have these people with their various religious traditions. You have the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, etc. And they'd sit around and they'd debate, hey, which one of these commandments is the greatest? Which one is the most important? It kind of reminds me of my time in seminary where the other nerds and I would sit around in this classroom and debate some of the finer points of Scripture, like end times theology or whatever, and none of it was ever very helpful. In this case, it's a really important discussion, but from what we've seen in the past interactions, uh, these debates and these discussions are not leading the Pharisees and the Sadducees to more devotion to God, right? But here we have the scribe. And he asked Jesus, he says, declare yourself, Jesus. Jesus, take a stand. What's the most important of all? And look at how Jesus responds. Verse 29 and 30. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Jesus is quoting a passage out of Deuteronomy 6. This is known as the Shema. It'll be up on the screen out of Deuteronomy 6. I don't need to reread it because Jesus just said it word for word. But essentially the Shema is, in essence, a synthesis or synthesization. I don't know if that's a word. But it's a synthesis of the entire Jewish religion. Meaning, how do we express the whole law in one sentence? What are the priorities that we as Jewish people should be focusing on? What are the priorities that we as God's people should be concentrating on? And this is so important in the life of Judaism that they would quote this verse every single day. What we get in the Shema is the nature and character of God. This is the foundation of what's known as monotheism. Uh, mono meaning one, theism or theo being God, so one, God. I'm going to use my very limited Hebrew here to see if I can explain some of this. Stay with me. So what we have here is the Lord. If you look at your Bibles, if you see Lord, it's all caps, uh, L-O-R-D, all capital letters. Anytime you see that in your Bible, it is uh, Yahweh. And Yahweh is God's covenantal name. This name is holy and set apart. It was so holy that they, Jews, would rarely say it, rarely write it down because it is so holy. So the Lord, Yahweh, God's covenantal name, 
our God, Elohim, God's personal name, is the Lord, is Yahweh. Yahweh, Elohim, is Yahweh. The Lord is one. So to break this down a little bit, the Lord, our covenantal God, Our God, who is near and personal to us, is the Lord of our covenant, the Lord of our redemption, the Lord of our reconciliation, and he is one in and of himself. Not like the gods of the polytheistic societies around us, poly meaning many, theo or theist meaning God, so many gods. Our God is is opposite of these polytheistic gods of the pagan nations around us. No, our God is one and our God is personal. And this is also an expression of exclusivity, meaning he is not just one in and of himself, but he is also the only one true God. Mary Healy in her commentary says this, In the world of polytheism, the Jews were the only people to have been granted this earth-shattering insight. There is but one God who has created all things and who holds all things in existence by his goodness and his power. This God is relational in nature and character. And this stresses the fact to us that he is the one and only God who desires our love and who desires our devotion. And this is in harmony with the fact that he is indeed a loving God. Our God is God alone and our worship Our love and our devotion and our allegiance must be exclusively to him or God will not accept it. And because of this, listen to me, because of this, it requires our love and our devotion in totality. It says, you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, meaning what one commentator referred to as your entire existence. The heart speaks to your emotions. You are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul. That speaks to your spirit and to your inner self. You are to love the Lord your God with all of your mind, which speaks to your intelligence and to your thought life. And you are to love the Lord your God with all of your strength. That speaks to your bodily powers and your self-control. Man, look, this is an all-encompassing love. You are to love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, and all of your strength. And you are to do so fully. This is complete and total devotion to the things of the Lord. And God can make claims on you to love him like this. God can make claims on you for this type of devotion because we are his. Man, this can feel heavy, right? This can feel weighty. Especially if you don't take into consideration the grace and mercy of Jesus to you. And I kind of think that's the point. This is meant to drive us towards God, not away from him. I think a lot of us really do want to follow God like this. I'd love to follow God with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then a lot of us get discouraged when we don't look like we think we should look. A lot of us get discouraged when we don't follow God this way. A lot of us get discouraged when we look at others and think, man, why can't I love God the way that they do? Or a lot of us get discouraged when our desires for God seem to be lacking. And I want to offer you this this morning, church. 
Grace and peace to you. God sees you right where you're at. And God says grace. From the beginning of time, God saw us and knew we would fail to love him fully because of our sin-sick hearts. And God was still pleased to come and rescue and redeem. But I will also say this to you. This grace to you is not an excuse for you to just phone it in. This grace to you is not an excuse for you to stop caring and stop pursuing Jesus. It's okay to be where you're at. It's not okay for you to stay there. This love of God to us through Jesus, it should motivate us to want and desire the things of Jesus. Because of the cross of Christ to us. The question then is this, why does God require such devotion? Man, because he's worthy of it. And that is the kind of love and devotion in which he has loved us. When God loves, he loves the whole world. When God gives, he gives us himself through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. We must not respond to God's full devotion to sinners and needs of grace in a half-hearted manner. Our love, listen to me, our love and our devotion always goes to something. And when it's not anchored in love for God and love for others out of a love for God, then we're being disobedient. And that disobedience is rooted in disbelief in who Jesus says he is. And when that is our position, that leads to anxiousness because we're never able to rest because we're always trying to save ourselves, thinking we have to be good enough and do just enough. And we're never sure if we've, if we've made it. We're never sure if we've done enough. Or it leads to apathy towards God and others. And we're going to talk more on that in a second. But listen, both of these positions lead to hurt in your lives or hurt in somebody else's life. Sinclair Ferguson says, God is never satisfied with anything less than the devotion of our whole lives for the duration of our whole lives. And so consider your life. Are you loving God in this way? Just real talk for a quick second. Some of us act like following God. Some of us act like committing to the things of Jesus. Committing to his bride, the church, is such a huge imposition on us. Even if you would never verbally say that, your life sometimes suggests that Jesus gets your leftovers. Man, consider the cross. Jesus died for you. If that doesn't move you to worship, and if that doesn't move you to devotion, if that doesn't move you to repentance and faith and dependency, then you really need to consider some things. You really need to consider if you truly believe in Jesus' sacrifice to you, or if you're purely just a cultural Christian. Consider if you're loving something, valuing something more than the God of the universe. Which, by the way, is the very definition of idolatry. Consider this church. 
Are you a fully devoted follower of Jesus? And man, it doesn't just stop at our devotion to God. It informs how we live and move in a world that is wandering aimlessly around in darkness. Jesus continues in his discussion with the scribe, verse 31. The second, being the second commandment, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love God with everything you have, and then love your neighbor as yourself. There is nothing greater, and there is nothing more important than this. Loving God, truly and completely, will lead you to love your neighbor. And this isn't literally the person that lives next door to you. Loving others in this way, loving others in the way that we're called to as believers, is impossible without first loving God. And it's impossible without loving God completely. And it's also incomplete to love God and not love and care for others. And in doing so, the way you love and care for yourself. So in Luke 10, there's a, there's a passage known as the, the Good Samaritan. Um, the story starts out, it's a, it's a fictitious story that Jesus is telling to prove a point. Uh, it starts off where there's a Jewish man leaving the temple in Jerusalem, and he's walking to Jericho on a notoriously dangerous stretch of road. It's kind of like going anywhere in Odessa. He's walking down the street, um, and he's jumped by these robbers. He's beaten, and he's robbed, and he's left naked in the gutter. And so these two men at separate times, one's a priest and one's a Levite, they're walking up on him and they see him lying in the gutter and they cross the street and pass by on the other side. The priest and then the Levite, which are like 2022 versions of like a pastor and a deacon, and they just pass by. And then the Samaritan man walks by and he sees him and he bandages his wounds and he puts him on his donkey and he takes him to an inn in the next town and pays for his care. The Samaritan in this passage loves a person who most likely he would never associate with and who wouldn't associate with him purely because of racial tension. And yet the Samaritan looks at the helpless state of this beaten Jewish man in the gutter unable to self-save and unable to self-rescue, and he binds up his wounds and he cares for him. Jesus is our good Samaritan. Jesus looks at our helpless state, unable to self-save, unable to self-rescue, unable to do anything for ourselves because we are dead in our trespasses and in our sins, and Jesus comes and rescues us and pays the penalty on the cross that was reserved for us. And Jesus answers the scribe. And Jesus' answer to the scribe apparently appeases him, because look at how the scribe responds. Verse 32, And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he, he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So here's a real clear and ever-present danger in our Bible Belt hyper-Christianized culture. 
Most of us in this room would look at a passage like this and say, yes and amen, brother. But does your life, like, do your interactions with people suggest that your heart is actually yes and amen to this? I mean, think about it for a second. Most of us really, really, really love ourselves. Even those of you with a really loud inner critic still really love yourselves a whole lot. I know this because our culture is so, so indulgent. We are not good culturally at moderation. We buy things because we think we need the things. Or we just buy the things because we want the things. We feed ourselves oftentimes to excess. Most of us don't go without because we don't have to go without. And we almost never go without for the sake of someone else, right? We love ourselves. But here's Jesus with the second greatest commandment that coupled with the first and greatest commandment, he says the entirety of the law and the prophets hinges on this. Love God and also love others to the degree in which you love yourself. Man, Psalm 51, 17, uh, David says the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The Lord delights in repentance and obedience found in contrite hearts. Not just an outward showing of religiosity, showing up from time to time, dropping a 20 in the box, doing the things you think you were supposed to do. No, the Lord delights in actual devotion to the Lord. 1 John 3.18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Man, if we're going to be followers of Jesus... Let us follow Jesus fully, loving people the way that Jesus loves people. Jesus in his life and his ministry gives us the picture we need for perfect and complete love. He isn't going from town to town offering pithy Christian statements and religious platitudes. No, Jesus is a man of presence. Jesus is a man who has been with his Father, demonstrating love in totality to God and then loving people out of that, meeting people exactly where they are, offering himself, expecting nothing in return. So church, we love people purely because they are image bearers of God, just like us. People in need of the same grace and mercy that we hold so dear. Faith secures salvation in Christ and love for Christ in others demonstrates that salvation has indeed begun transforming our lives and into Christ-likeness. Man, God loves you with no strings attached. When Christ went to the cross for the salvation of our souls and the forgiveness of our sins, he didn't expect you to clean yourselves up because you couldn't. He didn't expect you to approach him in perfect faith and obedience because you couldn't. He does that for you. Through his death and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can confidently and boldly approach the throne of grace. Scripture says that before Christ interceded for us by his death and his resurrection, we were enemies of God, hostile to God, 
alienated from God, and God loved us in spite of all of that. That's the gospel, man. That we were so unable to self-save that God came and made a way for us. Jesus obeyed both commandments perfectly for us because we couldn't. And so now we're free to follow Jesus by his grace, given to us by faith in him in order to do so. So now our response is the same. We're to love people. We're to love people with the truth of the gospel who don't vote like us, who don't look like us, who don't worship like us, who have a different worldview than us. And in the process, we're not compromising the gospel, but we're actually displaying the gospel. All of these things that we want to divide over, just consider this for a second. At our core, every single person Democrat or Republican, white, African-American, Hispanic, Asian, whatever sexual ethics you, you hold to, man, we all have the same problem. We're all sinners in need of grace. And all of the things that divide us fall away when we submit to the lordship of Jesus to us. All of those things fall away when you understand the depths of your sin. When we understand the need of Jesus in our lives and the sacrifice of, of Jesus for us, man, we move forward in the love of Christ towards Christ and towards others in faith and obedience to Jesus. Do you love God that way? Do you love people the way that Jesus loves people? And Jesus looks at this lawyer and he says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Take a step, man. Trust me as your Savior. It's more than a verbal assent to Jesus' response. Jesus sees right through to this man's heart and bids him come to me. This man understands that, that God's love, the love of God, unlocks the doors to the kingdom. Not just to us for the forgiveness of our sins, but also it informs our missional activity. It's God's love for sinners and our love for God and our love for people created in the image of God that leads us to gazing in wonder at the beauty of the cross of Christ to us. Consider this, Christian. This type of love will require something of you. It will require you to be intentional with your time. It will require you to be intentional with your talents. It will require you to be intentional with your resources. It will require you to open up your home for orphans, to open up your home for your neighbors and practicing biblical hospitality. It will require to give your money away. It will require you to sacrifice your vacations at times or your vacation homes at times or to change careers potentially or to change how you function within your dating relationships or your singleness. It will require you to feed the hungry or to clothe the naked. It will require you to give your first fruits to ministries and be engaged in ministries that are serving people on the fringes of society. One of the cool things that we're involved in right now um, is some collegiate ministry in general. And specifically, we have some just international student friends we've met who are far from their homes, far from their families, far from any familiar customs to them. And what would it look like for 
you all just to adopt some of these kids in a, like a familial sense, like a student that's just not from here, who's likely lonely, and just be a friend, and a person of peace, and a place of refuge, and an encouragement, and a person of gospel intentionality in this person's life. Man, if you're interested in that, we can help you meet some folks. I say all that to say, the call in the church of Jesus is not to be a hearer of the word only. If you are a Christian, your home, your money, your cars, your kids, your very life do not belong to you anymore. They belong to Christ. Let him use you. Let him use your stuff for kingdom pursuits. The call to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is a call to obedience and a call to action. It's a call to allow God to use you. And that's a blessing on your life to be used by God. But is your life reflective of this obedience? Do we love God and do we love others in the way that he's calling us to? Are you living in such a way that suggests you are a fully devoted follower of Jesus? If not, man, Christ is offering you forgiveness. Christ is offering you grace and mercy to take steps towards him in faith and allow him to minister to your heart, to call you out of just trying to do enough to appease God and to earn God's favor and to earn God's love for you. And because of the cross, there's grace for you just to keep going and to keep pursuing Jesus and to keep progressing in your pursuit of Jesus. There is grace when we fail and when we struggle and when we stumble and when we don't love God and others perfectly. But that is not an excuse for you to be idle. If you are a believer in Jesus, God has made you worthy through Jesus. And now if you are indeed in Christ, you can follow Christ because the Holy Spirit indwelling inside of you will lead you and guide you towards Christ in love and devotion. So your response is repentance and belief in Jesus. Christian, your response, if you are indeed a Christian, is to pray and ask the Lord by his Holy Spirit to reveal areas of unbelief in your heart and to grow in you a love for him and a love for others. Your response is to look at the scriptures, to look at the life of Jesus, and out of that, respond in love to people who have nothing to offer you. People who don't look like you. People who don't vote like you. Perhaps are in this country illegally. Who are not from the same economic pedigree as you. Who struggle differently than you. And you say you are a person just like me. Created in the image of God just like me. In need of grace and mercy just like me. And go and be a good neighbor. Man, if you're not a believer, your response is to look at the love of Jesus to you, who sees you exactly where you're at and says, Son or daughter, come to me. I will heal your sin sick heart and I will restore you because I love you and because I want you. Stop trying to fill your life up with the stuff that doesn't satisfy and the stuff that keeps leaving you empty and broken. Stop looking for meaning and value in relationships that only steal from you and not give you any worth, value, or dignity because those things are only found in the presence of Christ. 
Man, the only way to really love others, to truly love others, is to truly love God. There is no such thing as being a good person. There is no such thing as being good enough. You need the sacrifice of Jesus to be yours and personally accept the cross for the forgiveness of your sins this morning. Man, sinner, repent. Turn from your sin and lay your burdens down at the feet of Jesus who is loving you and calling you out of darkness. Receive his forgiveness. Receive his love. Receive life in him this morning. Let's pray.